0: Every now and then while researching this phenomenon, I stumble across stories that are so outrageous they defy everything that we have come to know about the phenomenon. When I say the word no as it relates to the UFO phenomenon, I do so with a heavy emphasis on quotation, we don't know much. This story, however, expands those borders and encompasses a wide swath of ancillary phenomenon. In many ways, it's similar to everything that happened around the time of the Mothman flap, but focused around two people. It occurred at a time when abduction accounts weren't popularized. This particular account takes place nearly two weeks before Travis Walton's disappearance and return would make news all across the country. Strap yourselves in for one of the most fascinating abduction cases you will ever hear. What's up, UFOnauts? Welcome to the Our Strange Skies podcast. At 6.30pm on Tuesday, October 28, 1975, Brent Raines received a phone call from Shirley Fickett. Both were members of the International UFO Bureau. She was calling to notify Rains of a case that was mentioned briefly in the Lewiston Sun Journal that day involving two men in a bizarre UFO event. An hour later, Rains was in touch with one of the witness's parents. They indicated that the two young men were shaken, and that they had also seen UFOs in the area on the night in question. Without wasting any more time, Rains drove over, and upon arriving at the residence of Mr. and Mrs. Stevens, noted that both witnesses, David Stevens, 21, and Glenn Gray, 18, were upset, afflicted by paranoia. Stevens was so paranoid that he took the planets Jupiter, and Mars, as well as Beetlejuice, to be UFOs coming to take him. It took a while for Rains to calm both men down, but after interviewing them separately and together, a strange narrative began to emerge. It all began in the early morning hours of October 27th. Both Stevens and Gray worked late hours at a poultry processing plant and wool mill, respectively. Stevens met Gray shortly after his discharge from the Navy. They shared many of the same experiences and interests in Occult Matters, and a short while later moved into a trailer together in Norway, Maine. At 3 a.m., they were listening to music in their trailer when they heard a loud sound of some kind. Assuming it was an explosion, the two rushed outside, but found nothing. Instead, David Stevens suggested that they go for a drive down to nearby Lake Thompson. This was odd. Glenn Gray agreed, and the two took off in Gray's 1971 Plymouth satellite. The plan was to drive four miles south down Route 26 and cut west towards Oxford. This would bring them to the western side of the lake. About a mile down the road, the car made an abrupt turn down a back road that still led them to Oxford but through a different route. The catch was that Gray didn't make the turn himself. The car did it on its own. Gray attempted to regain control of the vehicle, but was unable to do so. The current road they were traveling down was approximately five miles long and of rough and rugged terrain. Both men claimed that they covered the five miles in approximately two minutes time, a lot quicker than you would expect to cover in that amount of time. Even stranger, they reported that the ride felt smooth, as if they were floating over the road instead of driving on it. As a point of reference, the song that had been playing as the turn was made was still playing when they came to the end of the road. The car continued past Oxford and down the east side of Lake Thompson. They passed by a field where a group of cows were sitting and shaking their heads from side to side in a very odd manner. The car approached a cornfield, where two white lights shone on the road. Stevens and Gray initially assumed them to be from a truck inside the cornfield, but were dumbfounded to see the lights rise up into the air. Could this be a helicopter? Gray was able to shut the vehicle off at this point, and they both rolled down their windows to see if they could hear the sound of turning rotors, but were surprised to hear nothing but silence. As it continued to rise, the object gave off green, blue, and yellow lights, and when it reached a treetop elevation level, all the lights went out. The object hovered approximately 30 feet from the car. Both men became fearful, frantically restarting the car, locking the doors and rolling up the windows. They peeled away, and the object gave pursuit. A mile from the cornfield, the car sat at a full stop on the right-hand side of the road. Stevens and Gray became aware of what they called, quote, the brightest light we had ever seen. It was then that they came to the sudden realization that the vehicle is now on the opposite side of the road, and adjacent to another road as well. Their windows were now slightly rolled down, and the car doors were unlocked. They both looked into each other's eyes and saw the same thing, the color orange. Their eyes were orange! They took off again, west, toward the town of Poland, but ultimately turned back in the direction of where they had come from. Two miles down the road, the object was no longer visible. In the strangest NASCAR race ever, Steven suggested that they turn around again. Gray unexpectedly turns down a side road that leads them south to Tripp Pond, near the southern end of Lake Thompson. At the entrance of the road, the car abruptly stops. Tripp Pond itself is nearly half a mile away, but to Stevens and Gray, it feels like they are much closer. Off to the east, at an elevation of 20-30 to degrees, hovers a cylindrical shaped UFO glowing a very bright white. It hangs there for nearly an hour and a half. During that time, the car abruptly shuts off. The radio fades out, and the two desperately try to restart the car. 45 minutes after the UFO settled near them, two disc-shaped objects appeared. They glowed red, green, and blue, and began to perform amazing aerial maneuvers over Trip Pond. The car was still about a half a mile away from Trip Pond at the time, but they both saw them perform these maneuvers as if they were only 20 to 30 feet away. Both objects fell in a falling-leaf kind of motion over Trip Pond, coming close to going underneath the water. Then they would ascend in a pattern reminiscent of someone climbing a set of stairs. Shortly before 6.30 a.m., a dark gray thick fog moved in over the car the radio came alive, loudly proclaiming that it would be a clear and sunny day. Grace started the car with the cylindrical-shaped object still in view, and by 7 a.m., the two had made it home to their trailer in Norway. As soon as they walked through the threshold of their door, odd symptoms began to manifest. They were plagued with lightheadedness, burning eyes, sore throats, the chills, an inability to speak, a lack of balance. Their teeth became sore and loose, and it became difficult for them to breathe. Both men had a yellowish discoloration below their eyes, and Gray noted how his tongue had a brownish-white substance on it that would eventually make his mouth dry. Not long after they stepped in the door, both men received the same message telepathically. We're not done with you were coming back for you." Soon after, both men would head off to sleep. Glenn Gray described entering a deep sleep. Throughout all of this, both men would describe experiencing the same thing together and separately, this deep sleep kind of state. The skies over Maine were busy on the night of the 27th. Norway city patrolman Lloyd Herrick was patrolling at about 1 in the morning, when he looked up from his patrol car and witnessed a short, cigar-shaped object with two red lights on it, one in the front and one in the back. The object hovered above his car approximately 800 feet in the air and flew slowly in the direction of Norway. He was so excited by his sighting that he had radioed in to the sheriff's office to ask if anyone else had reported seeing such an object in the area. The dispatcher came back asking him what he had to drink that night. There was also sightings in the vicinity of Loring Air Force Base in northern Maine on the night of the 27th as well. Staff Sergeant Danny K. Lewis, who was on munitions security that night, spotted a low-flying craft on radar approaching from Canada. At 7.45 p.m., the low-flying craft flew along the northern perimeter of the base, at a low altitude of approximately 300 feet. The object approached a nuclear weapons area at one point, cutting its altitude in half. The object hung around the area for several hours, witnessed by multiple people, including the commander of the 42nd Bomb Wing stationed at the base, Colonel Richard E. Chapman. Chapman requested jet interceptors from Hancock Field in New York, and North Bay, Ontario. Both bases denied the request. Chapman would ultimately get the state police involved too, but they were never able to identify the object. The object would return to the area a number of times over the next few days, performing the same exact maneuvers in the same exact locations. If you thought the weirdness of this case was over, we're just getting started. In the afternoon of the 27th, David and Glenn drove over to David's parents' house. While there that evening, Glenn witnessed a black cube-shaped object tumbling through the house and disappear through a wall. Minutes later, what Glenn described as golden wires appeared on the television screen and remained there for a short while before fading away. On the same day, David witnessed an ashtray lift up next to him and fall back down on the table. The strangeness continued into the next day. At 8 a.m., David and Glenn were awoken by the sound of someone running across the roof of their trailer. Shortly after, Glenn reports having gone into a deep sleep. At around 4 in the afternoon, David and Glenn decided to go back to Trip Pond to see if they could find any evidence of what had transpired. While there, the two witnessed black cubes and spheres flying over the pond, and additional white silver spheres flying in numerous directions. Both men reported going into a deep sleep upon seeing these objects. At approximately 8.45 p.m., three knocks were heard on the door of the Stevens residence. David's older sister answered the door, but there was no one there. However, as Glenn was standing by the kitchen sink, He distinctly heard the letters U-F-O spoken by a male voice. It was also heard by David's father. This was only minutes before Brent Rains arrived at their residence. On October 29th at 9 a.m., a knock came to the door of their trailer. David answered the door and was greeted by a stocky stranger with a buzz cut, sunglasses, and wearing dark blue clothing he inquired if David was the one that had seen the UFO two nights earlier. When he received confirmation that he was indeed that individual, he told David that he'd better keep his mouth shut if you know what's good for you. He then promptly ran around the corner of a nearby building, never to be seen again. On October 30th, Brent Raines was conversing with a friend when he received an emergency call from David's mother stating that her husband had become obsessed with going to the landing site. When she took the keys away from him, he became erratic, claiming that nothing would stop him from going to the site. She described him as being in a sort of fugue state, claiming that he couldn't remember acting this way when confronted about it. After the phone conversation ended, Mrs. Stevens ran to the bathroom complaining of a severe headache in her left temple. After seeing mysterious lights fly away from her home, the headache went away. On November eleventh, Shirley Fickett became involved in the case hands-on. The focus of the case became the missing time event, which occurred in between the car being stopped by the cornfield on the right-hand side of the road, to the moment they realized that the vehicle was on the left. The method of exploration would be through hypnosis and the physician they entrusted was a man named Herbert Hopkins, a general physician from Old Orchard Beach, Maine. He used hypnosis to help people with addictions and to help women manage pain during pregnancies. David became the focus of the hypnotic regression as he was older. Glenn was present at the first hypnosis session, but soon withdrew and left for Oklahoma. His own family didn't even believe him, and added with the original stress of the events surrounding the night of October 27th, it all became too much for him. Over the course of many months, more and more details would emerge regarding the missing time experienced by the two men. Details were minor at first. David remembered being outside the car when it was hit by the beam of light, for instance. He observed the Plymouth satellite being pulled to the other side of the road by the UFO. In the next moment, David was standing above the scene. He could see Glenn in the vehicle below, still strapped in on the driver's side. He described the room he was standing in as 35 feet in diameter with 15 foot ceilings. The walls caved inward as they rose, and the room was completely devoid of furniture. A non-human being soon joined David in the room. David trembled as he described the being. It was four and a half feet tall, wearing a garment that looked like a sheet. He found it difficult to describe the face that was looking at him in the first few sessions, but would go on to describe it as mushroom-shaped, devoid of hair, with a small rounded nose, no mouth, and two large unblinking white eyes that were slanted. Their arms were short compared to their body structure, and their hands had four skinny appendages, three fingers and a thumb, that were different lengths and appeared to be webbed. The feet were the subject of repeat questioning. David generally chose not to discuss them, but did remark on one occasion that they appeared to be wearing shoes that were paper thin. Their sheet-like clothing was black and appeared to flow as they moved. The creature spoke to David through telepathic means and told him that no harm would come to him. David remarked when asked if the beings wanted to know who he was, said, quote, he already knew my name. The being led David to another room where four more beings that looked like the first were present. He compared this room to an operating room with a white table in the center. The beings extracted two vials of blood from him. When the beings wanted him to lay on the table, he rebelled, hitting one of the creatures in the face. The being just stared at David, showing no signs of aggression. They reassured him, no harm will come to you. He relented, letting them undress him and laying down on the soft white table. Above him, David could see bright white lights and a square machine with gauges on the side, and knobs in the middle that they used to examine him. His entire body was examined by the machine. Eyes, nose, mouth, ear, chest, legs, etc. They took hair, skin, and nail samples. When the examination was complete, approximately 45 minutes later, he was able to put his clothing back on. The beings then communicated with him telepathically, stating that they had been watching him for some time and wanted to study him. They told him that they would be seeing him again, and gave him a shot of some kind in the right arm near the shoulder. He was told that the shot would make him tired, and approximately a week later it kicked in. He was ultimately returned to the car, where the craft continued to interact with the two men for a number of hours. David answered every question that was asked of him. Were the beings friendly? Yes. What was the floor like? Shiny. What color were the walls? Shiny gray. What did their skin feel like when you hit them? Harder than ours. Did they give you a date when they would return? This question made David incredibly uncomfortable. He revealed that he made a promise that he would never tell anyone the date. But one day, they would return. When we come back from the break, I will recount Herbert Hopkins' terrifying men in black encounter, and even an encounter his son and daughter-in-law had with two mysterious, quote, UFO investigators. All this and more when we come back. What's unique about the men in black encounters in this story is that they aren't confined solely to the witnesses. In the case of Herbert Hopkins, the hypnotist on the David Stevens case, he would go on to have one of the most infamous MIB encounters ever recorded. For a little primer for those that may not know what the men in black phenomenon is, it's kind of like the films that bear the same name, except they don't have neuralizers or crazy guns like that. They used tactics of intimidation to get people to stop talking about their UFO sightings. The man who knocked on David Stevens' door on October the 29th, for instance, would be considered one of the men in black. Nearly a year after the David Stevens abduction, On Saturday, September 11th, 1976, Dr. Hopkins was alone at home. His wife and their children had gone to an outdoor movie, leaving him to catch up on some work. At 8 p.m., he received a phone call from a man claiming to be the vice president of the New Jersey UFO Research Organization, an organization that didn't actually exist. He was calling to inquire about the David Stevens case if Hopkins was alone, because that's not weird, and if now would be a convenient time for him to come over and discuss it. Dr. Hopkins agreed without asking for a name, which is very uncharacteristic of him. He was normally a very cautious man. His office had actually been broken into twice by people looking for drugs, and apparently there was a pharmacist murdered in the area from some guy looking for drugs, so... It was very uncharacteristic for him. After he hung up the phone, he walked to the back door to turn on the light for his guest. The light illuminated a man who was already walking up his stairs. This was impossible because in 1976, we didn't have cell phones. And according to Dr. Hopkins, he didn't drive. There was no vehicle present in the driveway. And the closest house to him was a little jaunt away. There was no way that he could get there that quickly. Dr. Hopkins opened the door for him, no questions asked. Again, this was very uncharacteristic for him. The man didn't introduce himself as he entered. He looked to be approximately 5 feet 8 inches tall and weighed 140 pounds by Dr. Hopkins' assessment. Quote, he looked like an undertaker. He was dressed all in black, with the exception of a white shirt underneath a black jacket. He even wore a black derby. The loose-fitting nature of the clothes made him look like a mannequin from a store. But the creases in his pants were perfect and crisp. When the man asked to sit down, Hopkins noted how the suit never wrinkled. It was perfect the entire time. When the man sat down, he removed his hat to reveal a head completely devoid of hair, including eyebrows and eyelashes. The face itself was really smooth and of a dead white color. His lips were a stark red in contrast to the face and his eyes were rather unremarkable. He inquired about the Stevens case in an expressionless, monotone voice that lacked an accent, sentence structure, and any sort of phraseology. As Dr. Hopkins told him about the case, the man lifted his hand to his lips to wipe away lipstick, revealing a very small mouth that barely opened when he spoke. After Hopkins had divulged everything he knew, the man said simply, Quote, That's just what I thought. Unquote. He went on further to describe the contents of Dr. Hopkins' left pocket, which included a dime and a penny. He instructed Hopkins to take one of the coins out and place it in the palm of his hand. Placing the penny in his hand, he then moved it out toward the strange man. Don't look at me. Look at the coin, he said. The brand new penny began to change colors from a bright silver to a light blue. Keep looking, the man said, as the coin became blurry and hard to see. The coin changed into a fuzzy ball until it became vaporous and gradually faded away. That was a neat trick, said Hopkins. An eerie feeling overcame him, and he asked the man to bring back the coin. Neither you nor anyone on this plane will ever see that coin again, the man said. He then asked Dr. Hopkins if he knew why Barney Hill had died. Hopkins didn't really know, but the man had an answer for him. Barney Hill died because he had no heart, just as you no longer have a coin. He told Herbert that he knew of his tape recordings of the hypnosis sessions and correspondence regarding the case. He told him to get rid of it, or he would suffer the same fate as Barney Hill, and that he would know when he had done it. The man's speech began to slow. As he steadied himself standing up, he said in a drawn out tone, My energy is running low, must go now, goodbye. The man gripped the railing as he raced down the stairs. He walked in a slow, unsteady manner when he reached the driveway. A bright light was beginning to creep down as the man was walking down it. He described it as being brighter than any headlight he had ever seen. The strange man disappeared into the light before the light disappeared itself. Hopkins rushed outside to find out what had lit up his driveway, but the man and the lights had gone. An hour and a half later, his family returned from their outing. Hopkins was still shaken and sitting at the kitchen table with a gun, and told them about his experience. His oldest son suggested that they go outside to see if any physical traces could be found. In the middle of the driveway, their flashlight shone on a series of marks that Hopkins said looked like, quote, a small caterpillar tractor tread. They were deep impressions, approximately four inches wide and a foot and a half long. His family urged him to do as the man said, and he did. He erased the tapes and burned them in his fireplace, as well as the remaining material he had regarding the UFO phenomenon. Herbert then phoned Shirley Fickett to tell her not to run any of the David and Stevens material in the National Enquirer. His wife had said to him as he sat at the table, the gun pointed to the door, recounting his story. What good was the gun, if he made a penny disappear? The strangest would continue to those closely related to the investigation of the David Stevens case. Herbert Hopkins' son, John, and daughter-in-law, Maureen, were visited by a pair of very odd people. One man and one woman. At 7.30 p.m. on September 24th, 1976, nearly two weeks after Herbert's encounter, Maureen and John were at home when they received a phone call from a man calling himself Bill Post. He claimed to be a friend of a friend who knew John and wanted to know if they were alone. Again, that's very odd. And could they come by for a friendly chat? The man's voice sounded slightly distorted, and the line emitted a weird buzzing sound. Marine and John agreed, and John met them in the parking lot of the nearby King's Shopping Center. Bill Post claimed to be in Bidford, which was a good 30 minutes away in good traffic. Seeing as how it was rush hour, there was no way he was going to make it there in any short amount of time. When John arrived at the King's Shopping Center approximately three minutes later, a man walked up to his vehicle and introduced himself. The car the man was driving had temporary New Jersey plates. They literally said, Temporary New Jersey, 1975. The man asked John where they could talk, and he suggested his mobile home. On the way there, the two got separated, but John noted how this person knew shortcuts that other people were unfamiliar with in the area. At a certain point, they seemed to get the hint that they weren't supposed to be like there getting to his house ahead of him, so he cut back and, you know, followed John there. Both of these individuals were the same height and weight. The man had an out-of-date hairstyle. The woman, however, was more out of place. She had a pronounced pot belly and a sunken chest. As an echo to Herbert's sighting, she had very red lips that were pronounced. The both of them walked using very short steps. When the man entered, Marine was watching a Jacques Cousteau underwater program. The man remarked that our submarine technology was very elementary. When John asked them if they would like to sit down, the man turned to the woman and stated matter-of-factly, Yes, Jane, I guess we could sit down for a while, can't we? When asked if they'd like a drink, the man stated clearly, we don't drink, take drugs, or anything. John clarified, meaning sodas. They both accepted a bottle of Coca-Cola. In conversation, the man kept talking about his father, Herbert, and asked if he talked to him much and what they talked about. He also seemed to know about John's purchase of a radio transmitter and was unimpressed with his use of it he was puzzled when John told him that he played music for a living. In the oddest, this is just the weirdest fucking part of this, the man strangely kept fondling and pawing at the woman in front of them, and he kept asking repeatedly if it was okay to do that. When John went to take a phone call, the man asked Marine how she was quote, built. Failing to understand the question, she simply said that she was built like any other girl. He then asked her if she had some new photos of herself so he could see how she was built. If the what the fuck nature of this interaction is too much for even you, uh, it'll be over shortly, I swear to God. When John returned from his phone call, the man told John that he was going to New Jersey and he did have plans to do that. The man told him to ignore the route the automobile club gave him, and instead gave him new directions. John didn't buy it for a second, he took the normal route, but uh, later he tested some of these routes and found that some of them were discontinued. The woman then stood up and stated her desire to leave. The man also stood up, but was unable to move any further. After she tried to coax him to go out the door, the woman actually asked John to help move him, because she couldn't do it herself. After several minutes, they were finally able to leave, and did so swiftly without saying goodbye. Think of it as you're moving in slow motion, then all of a sudden you speed up. The best way I can describe it is that scene from Big Fish where Ewan McGregor's character sees the love of his life for the first time and then time stops and then it just picks up quickly after that. A few weeks later, the man called and apologized for anything he did that was inappropriate. In relation to this, John had a rash of sleepless nights from the week leading up to the encounter through the week after it. And... A lot of people would continue to experience odd things for about the course of a year. When they were doing hypnosis sessions, they ended in March of that year, March of 76. And then in September, Herbert Hopkins gets a knock on the door from the Men in Black. That's not to say he didn't stop looking into it, but it's just... Why is there so much time elapsing? Why didn't they get involved sooner? This case has me baffled more than most. 70s abduction stories have an element of strangeness to them that the later cases don't. The later cases are kind of normalized in a way. You have the same beings over and over again, the greys. These aren't really the greys. They kind of look like the greys, but their features are different. They're not the exact same. What you find over and over again in these 70s cases is that the beings themselves are very atypical. The beings of the Pascagoula abduction. They had carrots for noses and ears, and they kind of had wrinkles to them. They also had lobster claws and elephant feet. They don't look like anything that has been reported before or since. Nothing. The same with these beings. I have never come across them again in literature anywhere. Two years after this, uh, in a case that I am going to be covering on the Patreon in a short mini-episode, there is an individual who left his girlfriend's house at 1 in the morning, was abducted by a UFO, and interacted with machine-like beings, one of which was like 20 feet tall. Again, the 70s are so weird for abduction cases. And they are never repeated again. So why the hell is that? And like I said, in many ways, the David Stevens case feels like its own mini Mothman flap. You have poltergeist activity. You have other weird type of UFO events. Men in black. You have these strange, strange beings. And uh, it's just a lot of weird stuff happening here. There is plenty of this case that I left out. Um, For instance, I forgot to mention that the beings actually took one of the buttons from David's shirt and put it into a container for whatever reason. The fact that it affected David's family and even those researching the case, this is something that goes beyond the norm for even an actual abduction case. I've never really come across that before. And at the time of this abduction case, there were really only two popularized abduction cases. Uh, The Hill's abduction in 61, of course, and like I mentioned before, the Pascagoula abduction. Those were the only two. It's not like they stuck around and they became these archetypical things. Like, there are certain things from those experiences that are archetypical, but they're also very, very, very different. The Hill's abduction, the beings that they interacted with do not look like the beings that people report now. They are different. And like I have said before, too, it's interesting to note that this was two weeks, nearly two weeks before the Travis Walton abduction and before it became a household thing. And again, this phenomenon really wouldn't gain traction until after 1981, when Bud Hopkins wrote Missing Time and kind of gave the phenomenon shape. That's not to say that there weren't people researching it. John G. Fuller did his part with the Betty and Barney Hill abduction. You had Raymond Fowler at this time looking at the Betty Andreessen abduction, who, Betty Andreessen, she did interact with Grace, and it was a very spiritual experience for her. But in the end... This story is not one that's often talked about. It's one that is reported in so few places. If you pick up Richard Dolan's second uh, UFOs in the National Security State book, it gets a brief, almost full-page mention, but it doesn't go into the depth of the case. And not a lot of people do. The only place you can find this case in depth is a book called UFO Dynamics by berthold e schwartz and he was one of the people that was on the ground investigating it with them and uh helping to get this information out there but again this is not an abduction case that is often reported in many ways this is an abduction case that is too strange for the ufo community You can find the Our Strange Skies podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Podbean, Spotify, and most podcast apps. If you'd like to get in contact with me, you can email the show at Skies at gmail.com. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for Our Strange Skies. And check out our Facebook group, In Gray We Trust, a group for those that look up into Our Strange Skies. We do have a Patreon page. Rewards include shout-outs, early access to the regular episodes, and monthly bonus episodes called "Their Strange Skies, where we look at UFO incidents in other countries. We currently have, if you're listening to this on Monday, two bonus episodes up now. Uh, we had to re-record the second one with Amber and Andrew, and uh, it went smoothly. It went better. Uh, no problems this time. So, if... You want to support the show in that way? There's bonus content for you. And I'm going to be introducing very shortly a bonus content for the $1 and $3 patrons. Um, they're called the ones and threes, where I'm going to be talking about random aspects and what just basically whatever I want about the UFO phenomenon. The first one is going to be about my time at MUFON in the internal review board and that one abduction case that I mentioned earlier with involving the machines that's going to be one of them. So I'm trying to you know deliver content for everybody here. If you think you want more, check out Patreon. Uh, we still have merch available in the T public store. Uh, check out the link in the show notes if you're interested in that. Uh, I promise that the new designs will be going up soon. Uh, things have been incredibly busy lately, just a lot of crap happening and I've been on vacation, and believe me, I've actually been working a lot editing episodes and recording episodes and all that other good stuff. So I promise those designs are coming up. Uh, We're going to have the There's Strange Skies logo in the store, and we're also going to have the UFO book club design in in the store. So you have that to look forward to. Special thanks to the OSIC, as always, for helping to make this a better show. They do a wonderful job. They have been killing it, like I said, with the Roswell research in soon. We're going to be bringing that to you next month. Our logo was designed by Tessa Brown, and our theme song was composed by Shane Yoder over at PutThemInASong.com. And finally, don't forget to look up, because you never know what you'll find in our strange skies. In gray we trust. media.